the four weeks prior to Christmas Sunday, or, the, or, or Christmas, the four Sundays before Christmas, are considered a time of Advent. And this is the third Sunday. Um, each week is a, is a different theme. Uh, the first week was hope. The second week was love. This week is peace. Next week will be joy. And, and what Advent means, it means the arrival or the coming. And, and so what is this about? It's about a time of preparing. It's about a time of preparing our hearts. But, you know, somebody said, well, Jesus has already come. Yes, he has. And guess what? He's coming again. <laughs> He's coming again. So in this, this season in which we are celebrating his coming, it is a very real way in which we are celebrating his future coming. Because you see, what happened when he came the first time was extremely unexpected. It wasn't how people were expecting it. People weren't ready for it. There were incredible geopolitical uh, um, wranglings going on in the world at the time. And in fact, if you, if you go back in, in history a little bit, I'll kind of remind us of some of our history. You know, the, 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 um, Israel was uh, in the middle of the Roman, or not in the middle, but in this small little corner of the Roman Empire. The Romans had conquered much of the known world at the time. And so about, about 40 or 50 years before Jesus was born, there was a, there was a, a general um, Julius Caesar, who started really conquering and becoming really popular. And, and a couple of the senators in Rome, Brutus and Cassius, got really jealous at what was going on, at the, at the popularity and the, and the power that Julius Caesar was beginning to wield in, in, the, uh, uh, in the Republic. And they became really jealous. They became threatened by his power. I mean, you know, we don't see anything political like this going on today. But anyway, in history, and so what they decided to do, they decided to kill him. And they, they, they plotted they, and they killed him. And after they killed him, they thought that they would have the backing of the Senate, that they could, you know, reapportion the power struggle. But they, they didn't have in mind one of his generals, who was a really good speaker named Mark Antony. And Mark Antony forms an alliance, a, p a political alliance with two other people. So you have Brutus and Cassius over here in the Roman Senate. And now all of a sudden over here, you get this other alignment. You have Mark Antony, the general, and you get uh, uh, um, the son of, the, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. His name is Octavian. And then you get a third guy, Lepitus, another general, Lepitus, and these form this triumvir triumvirate over here. And Mark Antony sways uh, the kind of the, the public opinion in his direction in this war breaks out between the two sides. The civil war that goes on inside the Republic. And it goes back and forth. And finally, the triumphant just completely wipe out Brutus and Cassius and their forces. And they take power. They take authority. Well, and then Mark Anthony begins to travel outside of the Republic. And he makes his way down in Egypt. And he meets, anybody ever heard of somebody named Cleopatra? Yeah. You didn't know Cleopatra had something to do with the story of Jesus, did you? Well, Mark Antony forms an alliance with Cleopatra down in Egypt. And, and meanwhile, Octavian in Rome, he's, he starts to, to become uh, 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 questioning about his other partner, Lepitus. And, and there becomes this battle and war between them. So friends and allies all of a sudden become en enemies, and Octavian defeats him. And then Octavian starts thinking, you know, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, they got a little bit too much going on down there, and they go to war. And Octavian comes out on top. Now, Octavian was 
a uh, very politically astute person. And he knew the popularity that Julius Caesar had carried. And so what he did in pagan Rome is he literally deifies Julius Caesar. He says, Julius Caesar was a god. He says, well, now I'm the adopted son of Julius Caesar. So guess what that makes me? Son of God. And so here we, and, and then he gives himself the title Augustus. Augustus Caesar. Anybody heard Augustus Caesar? Now we're right smack square in the Bible in the birth of Christ. Luke, talking about in the reign of Augustus Caesar. Augustus means great one. He gives himself this title. He's the great one, right? And, uh, and he, he ushers in world peace. Pax Romano, the peace of Rome. But wait a minute. It sure looks like war and subterfuge and friend killing friend and all that to me. But if you're a Roman citizen, well, now that's peace for you, right? Because their, 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 their goal is we're going to have law, we're going to have order, we're going to have peace in, in our empire. But what it took to do that is it took the armies to keep pushing the boundaries and keep fighting and keep war going out. And if you lived in one of those other places, it didn't seem like peace to you. In fact, the, the, the um, author Tacitus talks about the one Britain leader, Calgicus, who says they're unique in being as violently tempted to attack the poor as the wealthy. Robbery, butchery, rapine, the liars call empire. They create desolation and call it peace. So now you have the Son of God bringing peace. Isn't that interesting? Why that's interesting is because in the middle of this, I mean, think about it. This is what's going on in the world. This is what's going on in the politics of the world at the time. This is what people are up against. They're battling all the stuff that's going on. And you come to this little tiny place in Israel, this small little place in the corner of the world that nobody even cares about. It's an obscure place. And you have this guy who's been a priest, you know, one of thousands of priests. He's been a priest all his, obviously all his life, you're born a priest, but he's been, he's been participating in the temple service. And he's just a regular person, just like you and I, uh, living for God. And yet in all his living for God, his wife is barren. And he's got a stigma on his life because he doesn't have any children. And of course, all the whispering is, you know, wonder what they did. You know, God's not, you know, cursing them and not allowing them to have children. That was a big thing then. And then finally, he's about nearing retirement, long past the time he can have children, long past that time, continuing to live for God in the midst of all this. He, 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 uh, he's called part of his uh, priestly team, and they, and they draw lots. They draw lots to do this one special thing. There's this one special thing that priests get to do, and, and you only get to do it one time in your life. And that's the priest who goes in. Every, every morning, a priest would go in to the temple they would go through the court. They would come to, the, to the, the, um, uh, the, the holy place. They would go into the holy place, and they would come all the way up right in front of the curtain to the holy of holies. There's only one person who could ever go into the holy of holies. That was the high priest, and he could only do it once a year, and he had very special way that he had to do it. So the closest you could get to the very presence of God in the temple was right here because there was this little altar. It was the altar of incense. And Zacharias draws the short straw. He gets the short straw. And, and so he, 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 uh, he gets the lot. He's the one chosen and he goes in. And when he goes in and he's tending to this 
altar with this once-in-a-lifetime amazing privilege he got. You know, it's, this is the day of his life, man. This is the high point of his life. And all of a sudden, while he's standing there, an archangel from heaven appears before him. I want you to picture you going about your daily life and you taking care of your business and you living for God and you doing and you longing for all the promises to God to come to pass. And somewhere in a time you least expected, he was no more expecting an angel to show up there than you and I would be to expect one to appear sitting next to you right now. You can turn and look. Years before, centuries before, hundreds of years before, the Lord had given a message to the prophet Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Hundreds of years before this moment, he prophesies there will be a son. He will be born. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and he will establish a government of peace On the throne of David, the covenant David, he will keep the covenant. He will be the fulfillment of the covenant God promised to David. Isaiah later in in chapter 11 tells us more about this. He says, there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. It's an amazing picture because Isaiah is prophesying, Israel is going to be cut off, cut down, be like a stump. And out of that stump will come a shoot, like a dead tree, no chance of life. Out of that will come a shoot. New life will come up. Picture of resurrection itself. And he says, from that stump, a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What he's saying, from death will come life. In this moment, as Zechariah is standing here in front of this Uh, 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 altar doing this once in a lifetime opportunity longing for God to fulfill his word and having no idea how and when it's ever going to come to pass praying for the day that that's that that root will enter into this world the prince of peace Gabriel this angel says to Zechariah you're going to have a son His name will be John, and he'll be a prophet. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a Lord prepared for people. He says, John, you got a part to play. I mean, Zechariah, you have a part to play. You're going to have a son. He says, I'm going to have a son? Um... Gabriel, do you know how old I am? Gabriel says, yeah, do you know who I am? I always picture Gabriel as an angel from New York. You talking to me? 
I mean, I do. I picture it because it's like, all right, you want to know if this is true? You want to know if I'm telling you the truth? Fine. You won't be able to say anything until all this happens. How do you like that? That's why my mind, you know, excuse me. It doesn't say that in the Bible. It's just my mind. But it tells you how real life this is. What would you do? We'd do the same thing. Here's an angel standing right in front of him, and he still has a hard time believing it. So fast forward about six months. This same angel, archangel, shows up, and, and there's, a, there's a young girl. She's, a, she's a, uh, 14, 15, 16 years old, a virgin in Israel. She's betrothed, but she's not married. And the angel shows up to her. She's just, again, she's going about life. She's wondering when is the day that, that all of that's going on in this world is going to be made right. And the angel says to her, don't be afraid, Mary. Why would the angel say, don't be afraid? I think you'd be afraid too. <laughs> For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Immediately, she's remembering this prophecy in Isaiah. She's been a whole, they've been thinking about that prophecy. Here, Isaiah prophesied that hundreds of years before it happened. Hundreds of years before it happened. And here she is, and she hears this. She goes, oh my goodness. And then she asks the same question. She goes, uh, how's this going to happen? I'm not even married. You see, when we look around the world and we wonder how God's going to have his way, we don't have to wonder. We can trust. You see, the long-awaited king has come, the angel's saying, and he's going to come through you. How many of us know that the long-awaited king is coming and he's going to come through us? We've been given a commandment to go into the end of the world, from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. He says, I will return when the gospel has gone to the ends of the world. Peter says we can hasten that day. So John is born. When John is born, Zachariah's tongue is loosened the, the day they go to circumcise him, and, the, and, and, the, and, his, uh, and he's named John. And all of a sudden, Zachariah speaks, in the, and, and he gives this, this amazing prophecy. And at the very end of the prophecy, he says this, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. He's paralleling the Messiah, the Son of God, to the sun itself visiting. And he's saying, We'll give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Six months later, at the, 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 at the very same time that, that Jesus is born, and, and Mary and, and Joseph laying this child in the manger, all of a sudden we get some more uh, regular people out in the field, just doing their job, taking care of sheep. No more expecting to see a vision from heaven than you and I are. And all of a sudden, an angel appears before them, and he begins speaking to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were fear, filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. They immediately went to Bethlehem to see this site. Now, it's interesting to me when you read the text, it says all the angels said was city of David. They knew that was Bethlehem. They didn't have to wonder. They immediately went to Bethlehem. Why? Because they knew the prophecies. They knew it had been prophesied for centuries. And here it is in their lifetimes. It's happening. It's coming to pass. They rush to the manger. And how does God usher into the world this great king? Right now, there's a great king in an empire, in Rome, seated up there. I am a son of God. I am bringing the peace you're looking for. And what does God do? Finds this. How does he bring his great king in this obscure place? Nobody's even paying any attention to over here. That's not in the midst of all of the, the greatness of the nation, but in a little manger, he comes as a baby. Do not despise humble beginnings. You don't think you matter? Neither did Mary, neither did Zechariah, neither did the shepherds. How will God usher peace into the earth? Just the opposite that we'll expect. Just the opposite of what we expect. You see, uh, if, you, if you look up world peace in Wikipedia, that, you know, that bastion of truth. Um, I know, bad joke. All right. If you look it up in... Uh, Wikipedia, it says this, it is a concept of an ideal state of happiness, freedom and peace within among all peoples and nations on the planet Earth. This idea of the world nonviolence is one motivation for people and nations to willingly cooperate either voluntarily or by virtue of a system of governance that has this objective. Different cultures, religions, philosophies, and organizations have varying concepts of how to state how this state will come about. So what is world peace is when we all volunteer to get along and get together. How many have hope in that? We're all going to get along and get together. What's interesting, if you go on, they give 20 different ways to have world peace. And guess what? They're all different. So I have to ask the question, will the world ever establish lasting peace? And my answer to that is it's not possible. And the reason why it's not possible is because you can't have peace from the outside in. You have to have it from the inside out. Paul says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. I don't know how many people remember in history how World War II came about. British Prime Minister at the, uh, for years beforehand was talking about how great of a leader Hitler was and, he, and, and how wonderful peace was, and there was only one voice that was sounding out. He's going to bring war! He's going to bring war! No, 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 we're going to have peace. This is all good. This is all fine. And then sudden destruction. Why? I'm going to borrow the wor- words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. We'll never bring peace on the outside because we as a, this is my words, because we as a people refuse to accept the death of evil within us. 
We'll never re- bring peace on the outside because we refuse to accept the death of evil within us. This is what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. He said, the line separating good and evil, it's a razor-thin line that separates good and evil, passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. Even in the best of all hearts, there remains an uprooted small corner of evil when two gentlemen were having this conversation uh he was he was trying to reach out to his friend to to talk about and and his friend kept saying but i i cannot wrap my head around christ bringing peace because i look at all of the evil in the world and i see all the evil in the world and finally his friend to him friend said to him i hear you talk about all the evil in the world what have you done about the evil in your own heart How does Jesus bring peace? He tells the disciples right before he goes to the cross, in the final dinner, he says to them, peace I live with you, peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. I'm giving you a peace, and it's a different kind of peace. It's not the kind of peace that the world gives. This is a very different kind of peace. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. What that word afraid means, it doesn't mean, you know, don't experience fear. We're all going to experience fear. It means don't be a coward. Don't be a coward. If you want to know how to experience peace, I'm going to give you a peace and it's going to require you to stand in the midst of not peace. You see, when you meet Jesus, you're not the same. When you meet Jesus, you're not the same. Entire communities, entire families, entire societies, entire nations have been changed because people meet Jesus. You got Peter. He was a a rough fisherman. He worked with his hands. He worked with the sweat of his brow. He was dependent on the randomness of whether there would be fish or not. And Jesus shows up and Jesus says, can I use your boat? He says, sure, use my boat. And he says, now, he says, let's go fishing. He says, Lord, there's no fish. I've been out all night. There's no fish. He says, trust me. He trusts him. And all of a sudden, Jesus pours this blessing out on him. Peter falls down and weeps because he realizes that razor thin line in his heart. And he sees the evil. He says, Lord, leave me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, come with me. I'll take care of that. When you meet Jesus, he turns everyday ordinary people into into the divine calling image of God. Do we struggle? Do we wrestle? Absolutely we wrestle and we struggle, but we wrestle and struggle toward him, not away from him. And every step we take towards him demonstrates the power and the life of the light of his spirit that he has given to us. I was reminded of a story as I was putting, as I was studying this, and I looked it up, and uh, I can't find anything to the contrary of the story. I've read it before, I've seen it before. There's movies about it, so I can't find anything to the contrary. And this is, a, is an amazing story. It was a, uh, it was a, it was, he was 11 years old. His name was Joshua. He was in Liberia, and he became a satanic priest. And he begins to begin the priest for the the king of his country, and then he becomes a general, and he he is known to have 
murderously kill 20,000 people and do horribly brutal things, sacrificing children. His, his, name, his name, honestly, this was his name. His name was General Butt Naked. Why? Because he believed that he had the powers of darkness on his side when he would go to the war, and he would go to war butt naked because he didn't believe bullets could hit him, and none would. And Jesus appeared to him and said, you're about to die, and you're not going to like what happens when you do. He was confronted by Jesus, and it completely changed his life. He immediately left, spent some time being discipled and became an evangelist, went back to his nation and went back to all he hurt, began to confess and repent and tell them, I thought I had power, but the real power is Jesus. James Stewart, the famed Scottish prince, a preacher says this, when I speak of the mysteries of a personality, I am thinking of the starkling coalescence of contrarieties that you find in Jesus. He says, when I think of Jesus, there's this coalescence of opposites. There's these things that are completely opposite that come together to form this oneness that is Jesus. He says he was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he said he would come on the clouds of heaven in the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that children loved to play with him. And the little ones nestled in his arms. And his company in the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the sunshine. No one was ever half so kind or compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red, hot, scorching words about sin. He would not break the bruised reed, and his whole life was love, yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark naked realism, he has all of our self-styled realists beaten. He was the servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and the traders fell over one another in their mad rush to get away from the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last himself, he would not save. There is nothing in history, nothing in history, like the union of contrasts that confronts you in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of personality. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, therefore, 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 since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, us also, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Right now you are set in a race. Your life is a journey. Your life is a race. This is the opportunity God has given you. We're not waiting for the real time to come. This is the one that counts. You're not an accident. You're not here on purpose. You do matter. You are gifted. You are enabled. You count. You do make a difference. And how are we to do it? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him, Jesus, who endured from, such, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. You see, there was a um, historian, his name is W.E.H. Lecky. Uh, I mean, people are familiar with him. He's a very famous historian. He's a skeptic, actually. And he studied the life of Jesus. And this is his words. The character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the longest incentive in its practice, and has exceeded, exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. Saying, how long was Jesus on the earth? It's ministry for ministry purposes, three years. Three years. And he's saying, you can look at all of history. You can look at all of the ramblings of mankind. You can look at all of the moralists, all of, all of those who have sought, sought to bring change. And you can't even come close to changing the world the way Jesus has. And that is who desires to change you and to change me and to change the world we're in right now. How do we do that? Very simple. What do you say hard but simple? Number one, repentance. You know, one of the things that we do when we say, well, repentance, what is repentance? Repentance is when I come to him and I return. It's simple as that. It means nothing more than that. It means returning to him, returning to him and pouring out your life to him. It's understanding that thin line that runs between the good and the evil inside of us and saying, Lord, I want to give you all of that evil. I want to come back to you and you receive by his grace, by his mercy, all of his goodness in its place. It washes you. It cleanses you. It transforms your mind. It changes your desires. It changes your hungers. It causes you to thirst for more of him if you don't give up if you don't quit repentance now some of us will say i'm not that bad of a person i'm not that you know the, the thing of it is is we look in history and it's very easy for us to judge those in history right Oh, I would have been one of the people that was hiding the Jews in Nazi Germany, right? Do you know who committed the atrocities? Normal, everyday people. Well, just ask yourself. Let me just ask you. How many right now are afraid to post something on social media because they might get rejected? And we think we would hide Jews? He said, don't be afraid, be courageous. Be courageous. Repentance. 
I will never leave you or forsake you. I've poured my spirit out to be with you. Walk in light, walk in love, walk in truth. But what is that message? What should we be posting? What should we be saying? Number two, forgiveness and love. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against you, give it back to him while you can. Is that the way it works? Forgiving each other as the Lord is forgiving you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The message that has changed the world, the message that changed the disciples, was that seeing the acceptance, seeing the love of Christ in their life, seeing that Jesus was willing to go to the cross for them, Those who saw that thin line going down the middle of their heart, recognizing the weight of the evil in their lives and saying, Jesus died for that. And saying, thank you, receiving that grace and saying, I am taking that message. I am taking that love. If we want to know what is going to confront the issues that we are facing in the world today, it is that kind of love. It is that kind of forgiveness. It is that kind of power that changes people. When you give the message of truth, when you give the message of, 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 uh, of the good news, when you give the message of light, when you bring light and then it comes back at you and you turn around with forgiveness and you turn around with love and you don't uh, uh, give evil back for evil, but you continue to walk forward in courage with the peace that he has put on you, you bring peace into the hearts of others. It's not by sitting back and sitting on the sidelines and saying, I'm not getting involved. I'm just waiting for Jesus to come to fix all this. It's by being Jesus here now as he was, as all the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us were. And that takes us to number three. So number one is repentance, our own life before him. Number two is to live and walk in love and forgiveness. And number three, we are called as witnesses to Christ. We are his ambassadors. If not you, then who? So, I, I, you know, I'm going to tell on myself here. I, when I was early in my walk with the Lord, m- multiple times throughout uh, my uh, Christian walk with the Lord, you know, once I hit 20 and, you know, God just changed everything. I met multiple people who would say to me, you know, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm in the process of getting a counseling degree. Um, uh, I really feel like I want to help people and I want to be a counselor and, you know, bring, use Christian counseling to help people through the things they're going with and what they're dealing with in life like that. And I remember, I remember hearing that. And when, I'm, when I heard that, I would go, oh, Lord, thank you for that person. That is not my ministry. If you know what I do now, that should be really funny. Oh, Lord, we need more people like that. Oh, Lord, I don't want to be, you know, that person. Do you know God has a sense of humor? You see, because I was carrying a whole lot of hurt, pain, evil in my life. <laughs> and I happened to sit down with someone else who had an amazing gift and calling for counseling. 
It was funny because he would tell me he was straight up. He was, he was about the most introverted person you ever met. If he could be a hermit, he would. And he used to say, man, he says, the Lord makes me do this. I don't even like people. But he wasn't being mean because he loved them. He laid his life down for them. And spent three years sitting under him and learning how the peace of Jesus can be woven into the the junk that I was carrying in my life. About three years later, I meet different individuals and they would talk about things. I say, hey man, I can help you with that. Before I know it, I literally had a full-on counseling ministry and didn't even realize it. Then when I did realize it, I laughed. I said, God, you got a sense of humor. You see, right now, when I say to some of you, you're called to be a witness, that's what happens in you. Oh, Lord, that's not my ministry. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That in us, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter writes it this way, for to to this you have been called. Who's Peter writing to? Believers. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He says, we've been called to this. We've been called. Listen, you know what Jesus did? Jesus suffered on our behalf. Because this is what we've been called to. We've been called to lay our lives down for our brother, for our sister, for our neighbor. We've been called to stand up and speak to reach out and act, to call on him to see his power. Every single one of us here are unique and gifted of God. Peace. He's the prince of peace. He is returning. And he's returning when we have accomplished the purposes he set for us. How many of us are like Zechariah and Mary And others in the first century who were longing for God to fulfill his word and send the Messiah to bring righteousness and justice in the world. How many of us are willing to be like Mary? What do you mean? Okay, be a young girl, not married, who just got pregnant in first century Palestine. Because God God, wants to use you that way. My point is, is the stigmatism. What would everybody think? Well, we know in Matthew, her husband was going to divorce her. Her husband, you know, she, I mean, this, I'm going to finish with this. We'll close out with this. Here she was. She's engaged to be married. 
She went off for three months to spend time with her cousin Elizabeth, who God supernaturally got pregnant. She comes back and she tells Joseph, hey, Joe, guess what? Surprise! What? Yeah, oh, no, no, it's okay. The Holy Spirit did it. The Holy Spirit, no, really, it's okay. And Joseph reacted exactly how she would have expected him to react. Except better, instead of having her stoned, he was going to divorce her privately. Until God showed up in supernaturally in, in a dream and came to him and said, ah, 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 she's right. And that's a lesson for a lot of us men here. We should be listening to our wives more. But anyway, she's right. Cover her, cover her. That's my question. Are we willing to stand in the sphere that we've given us? If we want peace on earth, are we willing to bring the peace of Jesus where we are? Amen. Amen.